everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing one more author. This is the last one, I hope. One more author from our friends at Wild Blue Press. And I know that um, you will definitely want to hear everything that Debbie Levinson has to say about her book uh, titled The Crate. So we're broadcasting from the Inside Lens Network. We're on Talk Radio, iTunes, any place that you podcasts. I hope you will look us up. We have over 700 episodes to choose from and several different types of shows. Many of them are are true crime based, um, victim based. So you can really choose just about anything you'd like to listen to on the Inside Lens Network. Well, it's, it's my great pleasure to introduce Debbie Levinson, or Debbie as we call her, who is an award-winning journalist, and she has written the book called The Crate, which tells the extraordinary account of her parents' ordeals, both in one of the darkest times of our history and in their present-day lives. I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt and then bring Debbie into the conversation. So after surviving the horrors of the Holocaust in ghettos, on death marches, and in concentration camps, a young couple seeks refuge in North America. They settle into a new life, certain that the terrors of the past are behind them. They build themselves a cozy little cottage on a lake in Muskoka, a cottage that becomes emblematic of victory over the Nazis. The charming retreat is a safe haven, a refuge from haunted memories. That is, until a single act of unspeakable violence defiles their sanctuary. Poking around the dark crawl space beneath their cottage, they discover a wooden crate, now tightly shut and almost hidden from view. Nothing could have prepared them for the horror of the crate's contents or how the peace and tranquility of their lives would be shattered. Debbie Levison, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on board. With this, you know, I I read this complete book. I, I'll have you know that, and I highly recommend it to any readers out there. And I have to say, this to me, this was a story, actually two stories of trauma and violence woven together, but actually culminates in a tale of the resiliency of the human spirit. Would you agree with that description? Absolutely, absolutely. And that was exactly my intention when I was writing it. I really had two separate stories to tell, and yet they were linked together through this one common experience of my family. Um, And I felt that both contexts came together together sort of as an exploration of, of violence and of the evil that humans are, are capable of. And so it's not the happiest of stories, I have to admit, but I think I think it's an important one. I think it's one that deserves to be told. Oh, I have to absolutely agree with you. Let's, let's go into a little bit of background, maybe some of your personal background and why you chose to to tell this story, actually both stories. What was it that 
brought you to that point that you had, you felt the need to tell the stories? Well, I've always been a writer. That's uh, that's always been my profession, even though it's not what I studied, um, and it's not what my parents hoped I'd be. But I've always been a writer and a publicist professionally, and um, and then along came this incident that happened to our family. It was completely unexpected, the furthest thing from our minds when it happened, and. Um, you know, you you gave a little bit of background on on how it came to pass that we found this wooden crate on our property, and uh, from that point of the discovery, you know, it wasn't immediate, but I knew I had my parents' stories to tell that had always sort of been in the back of my mind. I always wanted to tell a little bit about their past and our our ancestors' history and what they had experienced in Eastern Europe. And then along came this horror that I had not been expecting. And so one of the themes of the book is about fate and about how random all these things could be. I mean, are they random? Was it fate for this particular discovery to be made on the property of a writer? Was it my fate to tell the story of my parents and of the victim involved? Um, You know, there were so many ironies involved in how this whole story came to pass. So many coincidences, or or maybe not coincidences, maybe it was well beyond that. Um, So looking back, I kind of feel I had no choice but to write the book that it was meant to be. What what was it about this experience in, in your life, in your actually the whole family, that tied it to your your parents' experience during the Holocaust? Why did you feel the need to tie the two together? So as you had said, we found this crate. I'm, I'm just going to reiterate, uh, reiterate a little bit so that um, I can answer your question. We found this crate on our property actually in Canada in this region called Muskoka, about two, hour, two hours north of Toronto. Um, and uh, it was this wooden crate that we came across accidentally. And when we opened it, we were not prepared for the horror inside the crate. And um, and that discovery, of course, had ramifications. You know, uh, there was a victim involved. It was immediately apparent that there was a violent crime involved. And so um, we placed a 911 call, and that, of course, triggered the media. Uh, so the media descended on the property and the story was carried in all the headlines and some of the coverage of the event was really was really negative uh, in terms of placing the blame on the victim it was really uh, unfair i felt and um you know we as a family were reeling from this discovery we weren't prepared for the horror and we felt violated that we'd been sort of dragged into this big sordid mess. My husband and I were freaked out. We had three young children that we wanted to shield from all of it. And, um, and of course my parents 
as you mentioned, they had experienced violence in their past. Well, they were traumatized by this discovery because they had expected never to encounter violence again. They thought they were safe and secure in this peaceful sanctuary. And then along came this discovery that just rocked our whole family. And... um, and that was the initial reaction, you know, the horror and the anger and the violation. And my brother was furious. And, in fact, he was the primary suspect at the beginning of the police investigation. Um, and then the headlines. And so we were we were just um, feeling all kinds of, of emotions after the discovery. But after a while, I started thinking about the actual victim in all of this you know, because we weren't really the victims. We were just uh, dragged into it. But there was an actual victim, and she was a real person, and she could have had a family, which she did, a family that would be devastated and grieving. And, um, you know, after after a while, I, I sort of transitioned in my thinking from, us as the family involved more to the victim. And I started thinking I could give this victim a voice. And I started thinking that other victims of abuse have global platforms to tell their stories, like the whole Me Too movement. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And um, so there are lots of, of avenues for other victims to tell their stories. But I know the media is listening to them and the courts are listening to them, but what about the victims who no longer have a voice, the ones who can't speak out and say, this is my story? So at some point I realized that I could be a voice for this victim. I could tell the story of what had happened to her so that she wouldn't be just another statistic and she wouldn't be forgotten in a few months or a few years. And... um and at the same time, I realized that I could tell my parents' stories because they are really incredibly linked to this whole discovery. I have to agree with you. I think being the voice for so many victims that have never been heard to to have the ability to tell their stories as well as you have is is something that you're truly blessed with. It's, it's it's a phenomenal story, and the way that you have gone, you go back in time and then come back to the present and interweave both both events. Uh, we'll call them events um, with everything that's going on in, in your present day family, and it's it's definitely got a lot of threads to it and each of them have their own story and their own meaning within the context of the whole book. And I find it interesting, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of true crime authors, which I, I think your book is classified as a true crime. And yes. most true crime authors are writing about maybe a headline crime, maybe a crime that, um, you know, has happened and and no one has spoken about it and they feel compelled to tell that story so that the victim's voice will be heard. But very rarely do I run across an author who's writing the story from their personal point of view that the event actually happened to them. 
that doesn't happen very often. True. And um, and again, that's why it just struck me that maybe this was fate. You know, maybe I don't want to I don't want to say things like maybe they chose us, but maybe there really was a reason that um, that this crate was placed where it was so that this particular victim would have a chance to uh, have her story told. I, I don't really know how else to think of it. It's just an incredible irony to me. Um, and like you said, I, it is a true crime, and I think the whole point of true crime is to be the voice for the victim, um, You know, not, not to publicize the killers and glorify them, but to be the voices for the victims. And, and in that regard, um, telling the story of the Holocaust is, uh, is very important to me because I would argue that the Holocaust is the greatest crime in human history just in terms of the sheer scope and the evil involved. Yes, and, and I think the important to me from my point of view, as we talked about off air, we're kind of both second generation survivors or whatever it is you want to call us of World War II. And I think the importance here is the preservation of these stories. I know, you know, there's there's many organizations out there in the Holocaust Memorial and, and so many places who actively do that, but um when when you're looking at all of the personal aspects of it as you've told it in this book, I think that's where you get down into the the worst of the worst. You're getting to the truth. And we've got to got to preserve that truth. Right. Right. I I completely agree and I think um you know a lot of the survivors are passing away at this point. There aren't really that many left. And I think it's uh, it's incumbent on the second generation now to start telling the stories for their parents, if if possible. And um, and uh, to my to my frustration and my sadness, it's not really an episode of history that's widely taught to children. And in fact, there was um, a survey of millennials not too long ago, and the results of the survey showed that half of them, half had never learned about the Holocaust, had never heard of it. A third of the millennials surveyed had never heard of Auschwitz. And that to me is just mind-boggling, that it's it's a drama it's in history that's fading away. And then, of course, we have the whole issue of deniers, Holocaust deniers who are saying it never happened. And with the Internet, they get to have a very loud voice. So I think right. it's just more important than ever, and especially, you know, when we live in a a society where there's hatred and intolerance and um, racism galore, I think we really need to be telling these stories more so now than ever um, to learn from it. You know, the saying is, those who don't know about history are destined to repeat it, and just God forbid that we are going in the direction of repeating what had happened in the past. Well, I think that's that was something that really impacted me throughout reading the book was the fact that, yes, these stories got to be told so that we don't repeat it. And, and looking at current events right now, we're in a pretty scary situation. Um, 
and it's it's very disturbing. I don't know. I guess I I remember we did learn some things about it. Now, you know, I graduated from high school many many years ago. Yes, we did study the Holocaust in history, but one other event that I know we did not was um, the plight of American Indians. I think that's another, almost another Holocaust that happened in our very own country. So, you know, we kind of pushed that to the background, which is kind of how World War II has gone. It's, it's like, okay, it's 50, 70 years ago, you know, we're on to something different. But you can't do that when you when you go back and you read some of the accounts, and that's kind of how I, I kind of self-educated myself further beyond what I was taught in history class as far as the Holocaust and, and you know, the American Indians. It's all of the books like people like you are writing that are going to teach future generations the truth. And that's where I find it to be so very, very important what you've done. Well, thank you. Thank you. And unfortunately, you know, like you said, there's no shortage of genocides and horrors and peoples being, um, you know, violence directed at all sorts of different groups around the world at different times. And so, yeah, we absolutely have to shine a light on all of these events. Well, and I think your family, like as mine did, they didn't really talk too much about it. And they kind of protected us in that way. Did you find right. that to be true? And how how did you learn about all that happened to your family? You didn't grow up hearing about it a lot. I, I, I take that. So you learned about it through time. Right. Well, that's so true. My parents never talked about it. And yet I caught all sorts of snippets that were... Um, you know, curious little remarks about the Holocaust or about, uh, I'm sorry, not about the Holocaust, about the ghetto. And, um, of course, when I was little, I didn't know what a ghetto was, but my mother would say things like, it's colder than the ghetto in here, or what we would have given to eat this in the ghetto. Um, And I never asked questions directly because my parents always seemed very fragile, Um, you know, Growing up in my house, uh, it was very immaculate, very quiet. There were just the four of us, my mother, father, my older brother, and me. And then I had one maternal grandmother. And beyond the five of us, there were no other relatives. So right away, I knew my family was different from the other kids' families because they seemed to have all these aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins and big parties and sleepovers, and we didn't have anything like that. So I knew that my family was different. You know, we spoke a different language. I didn't speak English when I was little. I spoke Hungarian, and our food was different. The way we dressed was different. And most of all, there was this sort of sadness and feeling of having to walk on eggshells. We could never, ever be angry with my mother or father because we knew it would hurt them. And yet they never really sat us down and said, so kids, here's why all of this is happening. Here's what happened to us in the past. They never talked about it like that. Um, It wasn't until I was about 13 
when there was a miniseries on television. I don't know if you recall it, but it was called Holocaust or Shoah in Hebrew. And um, and I think it was the first time that the Holocaust as a subject was was examined on TV. And I remember being in my parents' bedroom. I was kind of turning the rotary knob on the the TV. So this was the uh, mid 1970s. And um, and all of a sudden, I came across this show, and the sound of the voices of the characters and uh, and the things that I saw happening on the screen, somehow it felt like puzzle pieces sliding together. And somehow I knew, I don't know how I knew, but I just had this feeling that whatever my parents had experienced was linked to what I was watching on television. And um, and that sort of started a conversation with my mother telling me a little bit about what happened to her. My father still didn't talk much. He was much more... Um, introverted about it and it wasn't really until 1997 so by that point I was married with children it wasn't until 1997 that my parents agreed to record their testimony as part of the Steven Spielberg Foundation Uh, he had created this massive archive of something like 52,000 um, videotaped testimonies of people, survivors, and witnesses from all over the world. I think it was like 60 countries. Um, and so he was creating this videotaped archive. And, uh, and my parents and what seemed like the whole Hungarian Jewish community that we belonged to in Toronto, they were all taping their videotaped testimonies um, in the late 1990s, and at that point, I sat down to watch my father's videotape, and that's when I actually started to learn what had happened to him. Do you do you feel comfortable relating some of those stories? I, mean, I don't mean for you to go into detail because I think that would spoil it for readers, but I think it's an important thing to maybe briefly tell what some of the atrocities your parents survived. And it it just, I don't know, it left me shaking. It really did. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, Well, my mother was 13. So, again, ironically, it was the same age I was when I first started hearing uh, the word Holocaust through that miniseries on TV. And the first time... I had the nerve to approach her and ask her outright, what happened to you? Um, So she was 13 in March of 1944 when the Nazis came and occupied Budapest, where she lived. And uh, and she was, um, you know, a young girl, very sheltered, not sophisticated, very reliant on her parents. Um, And so you know, the whole Jewish community in Budapest started experiencing some of the anti-Semitism and restrictions and new laws that other nations in Europe had already um, been experiencing. Hungary was the latest country to enter the Holocaust. So, so you know, all these restrictions came to her city, 
Uh, and eventually that resulted in there being a ghetto built to cage in the Jews. And she and her family uh, were sent to the ghetto. Um, her father then was taken away to forced labor. Her mother was put on a train to Auschwitz. And she was left completely alone, completely alone in the ghetto. And, and of course, the ghetto was a pretty horrifying place, too. There was no food and there was no heat. And the conditions, as you can imagine, were just appalling. Um, people were sick and dying and there were bodies in the streets. And so just horrifying. Uh, meanwhile, my father had been... Um, he had been born in a village about two hours north of Budapest in Hungary. And the same sort of thing started in his village where all the Jews from the villages were sort of captured <laughs> and compelled to live on top of each other in this ghetto. Um, and he was 17 years old, and he was brought to forced labor. And from there, everything just sort of spiraled for him. Um what started with forced labor uh, became these rides on cattle cars that were, I mean, really miraculous that people could even survive just the initial ride on a cattle car, which meant people packed into um, a box car meant for sheep or cows packed in so tight that they couldn't lift their arms from the, from their sides, and people just actually died standing up. There was no food, there was no water, there was nowhere to go to relieve themselves, not even room to sort of move around to find a corner somewhere. People couldn't even sit down. And that initial ride when he was taken for, for forced labor, uh, that ride lasted five days with no food or water. Um, and then, you know, from there, it just it, it got worse from there. He he found himself in an initial transit camp in the west of Hungary called Fertörakos. Um, from there, he was taken to Mutthausen, which is a very well-known death camp. Um, and from there, on a death march, he was marched to Gunskirchen, another just horrifying place of, I, I don't even have the words to describe it, and neither did he on his video. You know, when he tried to describe what he had seen and the horrors that he'd witnessed in these places, he just didn't have the words. And so in the book, I don't try to put words into his mouth, and I'm assuming readers will get the gist of, of what was happening, but, you know, just um, the mur the rampant murdering of, of people for no reason and, and the systematic extermination in the gas chambers and the torture and the brutality and the hopelessness and the starvation and the sickness. <laughs> you know, again, there are just some experiences in human history where I think it's just really hard to find the right words to to describe because it's so far outside our, our reality today, right? Here we are in our comfortable lives living in America. We're safe. We have 
laws to protect us and ideologies in our society to keep us safe and to keep us free. And how lucky are we that we happen to be born in this place at this time? So to look back and, and just try to try to recall everything that had happened back then is is kind of hard. Absolutely it is and it's you know you can't even envision it. We we can't because and, and like we talked about earlier I think parents protected us from that in some way. Do you feel like that was the impact how how was it growing up with with your parents knowing all of this was going on in their heads all of these memories were were there and probably came out in certain ways in their everyday lives or was suppressed very very deeply um how was it growing up and and what was the influence of of their experience on you well Growing up, as I said, my parents never talked about it with us, and yet they were extremely overprotective to the, to the nth degree. They were so afraid of our getting sick or our getting hurt, and their number one priority in their lives was to make a better life for their children, so to keep us healthy, to keep us comfortable, never to... Um, to allow any sort of trauma or grief or uh, pain into our lives. And when we did get sick, you know, even just a common cold would freak them out completely. Um, and, you know, at the same – so we didn't know where all this came from. And, of course, I passed a lot of that on to my own kids because it's kind of genetic at this point. But, um, you know, they would get together with all their friends. They had these Saturday night dinner parties where they they entertained all the time. They had their very close friends, several, several, you know, probably a dozen or two dozen, maybe even more, um, couples from the Hungarian Jewish community that they were very close to because they had such a common background. I don't think there were any non-survivors um, um, in that in that group of people. And so they uh, they would come to our house, and there would be a lot of laughter and chatting, and then all of a sudden someone would say something, and the whole atmosphere would change. Everyone just all of a sudden looked so sad and distressed, and I never understood what what brought that change on. And then, of course, when we were in synagogue, um, which uh, the services were held in Hungarian, the rabbi would be talking and you know doing his doing his thing leading his service and the prayers and so on and then he would mention this word and it sticks out very clearly in my mind because i wasn't really paying attention i usually was playing with the other kids or playing in the cloak closet um but he would say this word which is the hungarian word for war it's called haboru he would say it and then the whole atmosphere of the congregation would change. You know, people would start to cry. They would look down at the floor and shake their heads and dab their eyes with their handkerchiefs and clutch each other. And I just never understood what it was all about that that brought this uh, reaction from all these people. Um, 
so so yeah, there was this definite shadow over our family, over the other friends' families of the Hungarian community, Jewish community, um, that was very different from my neighborhood friends or from my school friends. Seem to feel anything like that. So, going back to the the sanctuary, the cottage, and how it must have given them such great joy to be able to have a place like that to enjoy family and friends and entertain and be happy and safe and worlds, worlds away from their very own history. Um, so let's go back to the crate um, and the murder and the victim. What well, transpired and how how does this... Uh, how does this all come about in your family dynamic to where this discovery has its own impact on your family? Well, you're absolutely right. The cottage was a sanctuary. It was a real refuge in that my parents, you know, we lived in Toronto, uh, but our summer retreat was the cottage that my parents had built by hand with their wet and their toil, and um, they felt that this was the one place where they could sort of build from the ground up where it would be uniquely theirs. No one had lived there before. It was their um, their little sanctuary that no one could take away from them because, you know, in their minds, everything else had been taken away from them. Everything else in their past had been ruined. Their loved ones had been taken away. All their possessions had been taken away. Their childhoods were taken away. So this was the one place where we could go on summer weekends, or in my case, I actually stayed there for the whole summers through my whole childhood with my mom, and my dad came up on weekends uh, after having worked during the week in Toronto. Um, And so this was our little paradise. It was in this gorgeous area called Muskoka that I was mentioning, which is um, a region on the Canadian shield of just thousands of lakes and beautifully verdant forests and very pristine, very unspoiled, you know, these great outcroppings of granite rock um, and, uh, and wildlife galore. So just a, an absolute paradise. And it was the one place where, um, you know, we felt safe and we felt free to some degree to be ourselves. We spoke Hungarian. The place was decorated in in a very traditional Hungarian way, not like other people decorated their cottages and sort of rustic cabin motifs. Ours was very Hungarian inside. (laughs) And, um, And it was to be my parents' legacy to their children and to their grandchildren the place that they would hand down as their legacy. And then in 2010, when we made this discovery, um, we had had some renovating done, and my brother actually was the one who noticed the crate that was pushed up underneath the cottage in the dark crawl space under the cottage, 
Um, and he uh, he knew right away that it didn't belong to our family, that it didn't belong there, that it hadn't been there the previous season. Um, but, you know, he wasn't terribly concerned. He just knew it was unfamiliar. And so in the process of, of cleaning up around the property and cleaning up under the cottage, he he came across this crate and he tried to move it. And it was shoved up under the place really tight, first of all, and also very heavy. So he couldn't move it by himself. Uh, he needed to have help. And um, and he eventually did have another pair of hands to help him move the crate. And uh, And then it was opened, and then it was just horrible. And... Let's talk a little bit about the victim, her name, her background. Where did she come from, and why was she in that crate? Well, that was that was the big question. Her name was Samantha, and she lived in town. Um, she lived in one. There are three main towns in Muskoka, and she lived in one of them, not too far from the cottage, maybe a twenty-minute drive. Uh, to the downtown area where she lived. And it was the whole irony of how she was connected to our family. I had never met her before, and I didn't know her name. My brother knew who she was. Um, My parents did not know her. But as it turns out, we all knew the killer. And so that, again, was just, you know, all all the coincidences that tied her to our family that tied her family to ours those were all the things that i just couldn't believe and yet felt were the things compelling me to write her story well you say you knew the killer how how did you know him and and i mean i'm you had interaction with him did you ever think that he was a killer um, well, no. In fact, I thought he was like a big teddy bear. He was—he just seemed like an absolutely normal, unremarkable person, um, a nice guy. And in fact, that's uh, that's what everybody thought about him. So that when it turns out he was he was convicted of this uh, crime, people couldn't believe it because they had the exact same impression of him—that he was just a big teddy bear. And uh, my parents did know him pretty well, and my brother knew him pretty well. And, um, <sighs> he, yeah, it, it came as a complete shock. That, but, but again, that, so that's one of the topics that I really try to speculate on, um, which is how is it that people are capable of this, of this evil, of, of being a monster, and yet, we don't recognize it in them. You know, at first when I heard about the crime, I thought I thought it would be like my over my overactive imagination led me to think, well, it had to be a killer wearing a mask because if they weren't wearing a mask, everybody would know right away that they were a killer. You know, and I thought back to the movies that I had seen as a kid, like Friday the 13th where Jason wears a hockey mask and and um because he had to have some defining deformity that would uh, change him from being just a normal law-abiding citizen to being a killer, because 
I couldn't explain it any other way that a person could be capable of that kind of violence unless they were um, not normal in some sense. I know we all seem to have the big bad wolf in mind when we think about people who do things like this, but how many times did it end up being like the really nice guy next door? <laughs> and uh, it's mind-blowing when you really think about it how many times that happens, like a Ted Bundy or, or the BTK killer. It's people going about their normal lives, and we don't suspect it at all. So, right. you know, we, we try very scarier, hard. Right? It is. I think that's even scarier because then there's no way to identify who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it would be best if they did all wear masks and we'd know who, who to protect ourselves from. But, exactly. you know, in, in all that exactly. we do for self-protection, is it really going to do any good in the long run? I, I don't know. That's that's a subject for sure. But so after this happened, how did you feel and how did your family feel about being in the cabin? Well, um, so that's actually how, uh, how my two stories became intertwined because when it first happened and we were all freaking out and we were all, um, you know, so fearful. We didn't know if we'd been targeted in some way. And I, I remember, you know, my husband and I were, were talking to each other and saying, well, how could we ever go back there? For him, he didn't have that close, lifelong tie to the cottage that I do. Um, and he was saying, well, you're not thinking about going back there, are you? And uh, we actually were sitting in my parents' kitchen, um, and he, he asked them point blank, about going back there, and my mother made a very interesting comment that started me thinking. She said, well, of course we are. Of course we're going back there. We'll get over this. We've been through nightmares before. And that comment made me realize um, not only had this discovery dredged up all their memories that they tried to uh, to tuck away, that they were now thinking about all the nightmares they'd been through before, um, which is something that really upset my brother and me because we thought that my parents had been sort of successful in tucking away those memories, which, of you know, thinking now, of course, that would be impossible. But we thought they sort of stopped thinking about the Holocaust. And... Um, so she made that comment, and I I realized that's what was on their minds. And, and yes, we were talking about violence that had happened in the past, and now violence that came to visit in the present. And, and what resiliency these people have, and you, as part of the family. It's, it's just amazing to me. So when you went back, to the your whole family went back for a vacation i assume what were your feelings being there was there anything about being there did you feel samantha's presence or what did what were your feelings well i think um i think all of us couldn't help but of what had happened and be um uncomfortable to say the least 
And again, you know, I had always had this overactive imagination, so I couldn't help thinking, oh, you know, would I, would I see a face in the window? Would the killer be out there in the woods somewhere? Um, and this was before the killer was actually identified and brought to justice. But I didn't know if it was someone I knew. I didn't know if it was someone who would still be lurking somewhere, uh, waiting for an opportunity to kill again. I, I just had no idea. Um, well, were there not other other news accounts of of different remains found within the area? Were those ever connected to anyone? Well, actually, it was not connected to this case, which again is just mind-boggling to me because here we are in this region of 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 serenity and paradise. And that summer, it turns out there were a number of violent crimes, but they actually weren't connected to this particular crime. Just another coincidence of many. But I'm sure that gave you pause too, waiting for someone peeking through the windows. I think, you know, oh, sure. I would be scared. <laughs> sure. I mean, I've watched enough episodes of Law and Order to know that there was a serial killer on the loose. But of right. Course, that wasn't the case. Sounds good. Do you but, know um, whether any of those other crimes were solved? Yeah, they eventually were. They were, but no connection to this one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I understand this is your very first book. Yes. Your very first book titled The Crate. And so what, do you have other projects in mind? Are you working on a second book? And can you tell us anything about what the future holds? Sure. Well, I actually had written a romance back in the 90s um, when I first toyed with the idea of becoming an author. And it just kind of got sidelined, you know, with having kids and moving from Canada to the United States. I kind of put it on a a back burner for a while, but um, it's completed and it got some some good feedback from publishers. So I'm thinking of uh, revising it, bringing it back to the present and seeing if I can do something with that. And then I have an idea for another uh, thriller that I'm going to be starting to write hopefully this summer, um, which will be based on some crimes that took place in Connecticut in the 80s, in the late 70s and early 80s. So um, I'm hoping to get going with that one as well. Would this have anything to do with – There's, I know – Another client of mine lives in Connecticut, and she's she's speaking at a vigil. I think the coming week or maybe the following week. Um, there were four young girls. There's four young girls' cases in Connecticut that are over years old. Would uh, I see? We've lost Debbie. Hopefully, we'll call back in. Sometimes this is what happens. This is what happens when you're doing a live podcast. We just roll with it. I'll wait a few minutes to see whether or not she's able to call back in. And I'll just keep jabbering, I guess. <laughs> I guess you might call it. There she is. About that. Lost you for a Not second. a problem. That's okay. Um, I don't know whether you heard me or not, but I was asking about the, the unsolved cases of missing girls in Connecticut from back in the 70s and maybe into the 80s. Is that what you're 
ideas headed towards, or are you looking at different cases? No, I have a, a completely different topic in mind. Um, and I, in fact, I haven't heard about that, and so now I'm curious. Now I think I'm going to have to look into that one as well. I'll send you the information. I'll, I'll send it to you, and uh, you know, if if you if you wanted to or are interested, you might want to con- uh, head to the vigil. I think it's going to be. Oh, I'll send you the information because I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay, but, that yeah, would be terrific. Connecticut seems to have its share. Um, you know, sometimes in the in the true crime world, you look at different regions, and it seems like Connecticut is one of those regions, as well as, of course, the Pacific Northwest, which is referred to as serial killer central, and then Florida. <laughs> so I'm sure you got a lot of material to call call through to, to come up with a great story. Now, will I, these I think be? So. But it won't be as close to my heart as uh, as this one. Obviously, this is a family story, and it's a very it's a very intimate one. So, I think any any fiction that I write in the future um, won't be as as dear a project as this one. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's kind of like the birth of your first child. <laughs> it's it's an I all agree. new experience. That's so Definitely. true. So what does your event schedule look like? Are you out doing lots of book signings and, and launches? Yes. I actually just had my official book launch party last week, and it was a dream come true. It was just magical. You know, this, it was a long process to to be published. Um, you know, writing the book is really just the first step I found out. But actually finding an agent and then signing a contract with a publisher is a long drawn out process um and arguably the harder part of it too because you just have to be patient so much of it is out of control is out of the author's control anyway um and so so to finally get to the point where I could hold the book in my hands and uh and also give it to my mother because that was a huge motivation for me. I, I just couldn't wait to present her with her own story as a published book. And so she was just thrilled to see that happen. Um, she's almost 88 now. and so What that, a beautiful uh, legacy for her. Yeah, and that so that was my gift for her. But um so we had the official launch party recently and uh and that was great to be surrounded by family and friends for that. And then I have um a book tour planned for August in Canada, in Toronto and in Muskoka. Um and between now and then I'm actually on a panel at Thriller Fest in New York City. Uh, which is just, um, you know, thrilling for me. That's a huge literary conference of thriller authors and uh, and agents and uh, and readers. So that's coming up next weekend on the 14th of July in New York. And then uh, and then I have a bunch of other local events. That are that are sort of falling into place from September and onwards, um, different author panels and readings and signings, and it's all on my website. Uh, there's a bunch of events already listed, and I'm adding more every day. 
Well, let's give let's give listeners your website so everyone can go there. Great. It's www.debbielevison.com. So D E B B I E L E V I S O N dot com. And the events are listed there, and there are some links to buy the book listed there. So it's all a very exciting process. And, and one of, oh, I should mention, first of all, I have to give a shout-out to Wild Blue Press because they're just tremendous to work with. I love them, Steve Jackson and Michael Cordova in Colorado. So um, big shout-out to them. But also the book just was released on audio, and that is a huge, exciting thing for me too. Uh, Cassandra Campbell is the narrator, and she's amazing in the audio world. She's like the Meryl Streep. She's won every award for her work, and she she narrated Orange is the New Black and The Help and Lilac Girls and James and the Giant Peach. Um, she was inducted into the Audio Hall of Fame, so she's amazing, and she really gets some of the Hungarian words down pat in the book, and she does all these different voices, and she's just beautiful to listen to. So I'm very excited about that, and the audio was released by Tantor Media, so another shout-out to them. So and where can, where, can, where can people get the audio version? Well, both the book and the audio are on Amazon and um, and Goodreads.com, BarnesandNoble.com, IndieBound, uh, the Wild Blue Press website, of course, and the Tantor Media website. So, and bookstores. Forgot about bookstores. <laughs> and if the bookstore is near, people don't happen to have it in stock, it can be ordered too. Wonderful. Listen, I this has been a great conversation. The book I highly recommend, and I, I just want to leave listeners with the fact that this, you know, even though you've had to cover some pretty excruciating times, it's still, it's to me, it was a message of hope and love and and the triumph of good over evil and you know again the resiliency of the human spirit and how we can get through things is is tremendous are there any parting comments anything that you would like to leave listeners with just thank you to you delilah for having me and for talking about the book thank you i really appreciate that it's been a pleasure it really and truly has I have really enjoyed this conversation as much as I've enjoyed reading the book myself. And um, I appreciate you taking your blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen for generations to come. It's that important of a book. So we'll close this episode of Imagine Publicity on Air with many thanks to Wild Blue Press and author Debbie Levison. Please go to all the places that we've described and get your copy of the great. You will not be disappointed. And stay safe out there. And most of all, be kind to each other, please. 